As we continue this uh, series, Remember Me, Jesus says, as you partake, do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning as we continue this, this series, I, I really thought it would be helpful because I think that there's a lot of people who really don't know and don't understand some of the terminology that's out there. We kind of have, have grown to expect it and um, hear it, and we kind of think we know what it's about, but I'm not sure we do. I'm not sure we do. So I thought I would start off uh, this, this morning by, by sharing with you some of the names that are used for this remembrance. I thought you'd find this rather unique and interesting. You know, the very first phrase that was used by the early church was simply the bread breaking. The bread breaking. And they would say, you know, we're going to go to the bread breaking. And if you look at Acts 2.42, it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to bread breaking. And it wasn't, it wasn't about having a meal together. They were referring to this specific remembrance of the elements of the bread and the cup, the bread breaking. Secondly, and I'm, I know you've heard this one before, but it became part and uh, commonly called communion. Communion. How many of you have, you have heard that one? <laughs> Probably most of you have heard that one. Communion. But this word communion, though, it comes from, from the word, the Greek word koinonia, <clears throat> which, which has to do with fellowship. It has to do with sharing. Uh, it says, for example, in 1 Corinthians, the cup of blessing upon which we ask God's blessing, does it not mean we participate in and share a fellowship, a communion? In the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, does it not mean we participate in and share a fellowship or a communion in the body of Christ? So communion has to do with the community. It has to do with the fellowship. The fellowship. The third word that's uh, been used and probably is used the most, I think, to, to describe this remembrance is the Eucharist. The Eucharist. Or the Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving meal or the thank meal, uh, both uh, in 1 Corinthians as well as in the other passages of Scripture, as is the case here in Luke chapter 22, it says that Jesus took bread and spoke a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he took the bread and he broke it after giving thanks. And the whole, the whole word giving thanks or thanksgiving is the Greek word eucharisteo. And so that's where you get the word Eucharist. Eucharist. There's a lot of, uh, lot of thoughts and ideas that come into your mind, I'm sure, when you think of that. Um, but I thought this would help. Number four, number four, this is called the Lord's Table. The Lord's Table. Uh, and the Lord's Table wasn't made of wood and that kind of stuff. It was referring to the event. The event. Coming together to share in the Lord's table, the event. Listen, for example, to the words again of Paul. Uh, 
he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, you cannot drink the Lord's cup and the demon's cup. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the demon's table. So he's talking about the event, the Lord's table. The fifth one that uh, you've heard, I know, because it's on the screen when you come in and it's uh, for the message as well as other things, and that's the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. Where the Lord's table refers to the event, the Lord's Supper refers to the actual meal. And it's interesting because is it really a meal? Is it really a meal? No, it's not a huge meal. It is part of the Passover meal. We talked about that before. But it's called the Lord's Supper. It says you gather for your meetings. When you gather for your meetings, it is not the supper instituted by the Lord that you eat. Paul is correcting the Corinthians when he talks about the Lord's Supper. And then the last one this morning I just wanted to share with you before we, before we move on into the meat in, of, of things. Uh, the last one I want to share with you is the word mass. Mass. How many of you have heard mass? Well, maybe you've heard all of these before. Mass. When you think about mass, you hear people saying, for example, I'm going to mass. I'm going to Mass. But what do they mean when they say they're going to Mass? What does Mass mean? And so as you, as you look at this, you'll notice that Mass comes from the Latin. Prior to this, most people spoke Greek. And most of us would say it's all Greek to us. But anyway, they used to speak Greek before they even instituted this Latin stuff. But... This Latin uh, mass comes from the Latin ete mesa est, which, by the way, is not really complicated. Uh, it means go, you are sent out. Go, you are sent out. The, the ete is the word that comes from ether, which is journey. Journey. And then it says, Mesa Est. You've been set out on a journey. And it kind of reminds you, doesn't it, of Jesus when he said to the disciples, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. The primary passage where this comes from, by the way, is Luke chapter 24. And you can read the whole story about the disciples who are walking on the Emmaus Road and and uh, how their interaction occurs. But in the process of that passage in Luke chapter 24, it talks about Jesus with those two disciples, and it says that he took the bread, blessed it, giving it to them. And it says right there in that context that all of a sudden their eyes were opened and their hearts burned within them as they listened to him talk about all the prophecies in the Word of God. He says also in verse 40, which follows, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. And in that passage also in Luke chapter uh, 24, verse 49, it says, I, I am going to give you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, your witnesses. And Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So, when you think about Mass, I want you to think about the final uh, proclamation that became part of the services of the Christians as they would gather together. 
they would share in worship and teaching and so on. At the very close of those services, they would have a declaration. They would say, go, you are set out. So it's interesting that we think about Mass as something we go to when in fact Mass is what we do. Mass is what we do. We go to worship, we go to celebrate, we go to praise, we go to spend time with Him, and then we are sent out, just like the disciples themselves after their time with Jesus. It says they sang a hymn and they went out, went out to the Mount of Olives. So when you think of these things and you hear these things, now you'll have some idea, if you didn't before, what they mean. There's no charge for any of that. But I wanted to share those things with you because I really think sometimes when you hear those words, uh, for example, bread breaking is not used anymore, really. But when you hear people talking about the Eucharist or Mass, the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, all of these things, communion, this hopefully will give you some context to understand what is being described. And none of it, none of it is separate from the entire body of believers. None of it. It's all part and parcel with the community of God's people. Individually, we come to Christ and we receive salvation and forgiveness. But communion and the remembrance and the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, all of it, it's about us. It's about all of us collectively. We are part of the body of Christ. So Jesus' challenge for us is this morning, remember how I gave you my life. Remember how I gave you my life. Three of these, maybe four, are things that I think every one of us in this place would understand and agree to and, uh, and, and comprehend. But there may be some others that we don't yet really fully embrace. For example, I died for you. Jesus would say, I died for you. Christ died for us at a time when we were helpless and sinful. No one is really willing to die for an honest person, though someone might be willing to die for a truly good person. But God showed how much he loved us by having Christ die for us, even though we were sinful. So when you come and you partake of communion and you remember the Lord's death, you remember his body, his blood, obviously most of the time we recognize that Jesus died for us. He died for us. And we're very thankful, aren't we? That Jesus died for us. The second point here is Jesus would say, I raised you up. I didn't just die for you. I raised you up. Listen to the scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he not only died for us, but he raised us up. He raised us up. Thirdly, Jesus would say, I made you acceptable. I made you acceptable. Now, remember again, we're, we're, we're reflecting on 
how Jesus gave us his life. He says, remember how I gave you my life. Most of us are comprehending that Jesus died for us. Jesus rose victorious over death so that he could raise us. Jesus did what he did so that we would be acceptable to God, so that we would be able to be in his presence. You know, we, we understand all those things. Listen to the passage in Romans 5. He says, There is more. Now that God has accepted us because Christ sacrificed his life's blood, we will also be kept safe from God's anger. Even when we were God's enemies, he made peace with us because his son died for us. Yet something even greater than friendship is ours. Now that we are at peace with God, we will be saved by his son's life. His son's life. So far, so far I think most of us when we share in this table, in this supper, uh, most of us think about these things when we're partaking of communion. Maybe even the next one, number four, I exchanged my life for yours. I exchanged my life for yours. I mean, we were guilty. (laughs) But God in his amazing grace took our place. He took our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. So he exchanged places with us. You were guilty. You have a sentence of death. Jesus took the sentence of death for you, for me. And he took our place. Most of us would would comprehend that. I exchanged my life for yours. Now, I want to focus on some things that maybe you don't think about enough when it comes to this table, this communion, this bread breaking. And that is number, number five. I performed life-transforming surgery. Life-altering surgery. You know, when you think about what Jesus has done for us, all of the above are, are amazing, aren't they? But look at this. He says in Colossians 2, 9 to 11, he says, all the fullness of deity lives in Christ's body. Listen carefully. And you have been filled by him. And then he says, you were also circumcised by him. Circumcision was that act that they used to do to male, male children that was... Uh, Something that set them apart, identified them, as far as Jews are concerned. Something they did regularly, something they were, they were commissioned to do and participated in. But the Bible says here that we, we were circumcised by Jesus. Not in a fleshly sense. He didn't, he didn't do something as they did then. But he says this wasn't performed by human hands. The whole body was removed through this circumcision by Christ. So I want you to understand what God has done in Christ for us when it talks about this surgery. God takes our lives, God takes our lives, 
He not only provides for our sin, pays the debt of our sin. He not only makes us acceptable to the Father so that we can be in his presence, but we also find that as he exchanges his life with us, he also surgically, spiritually, cuts away every aspect of our oldness, everything that pertains to the old life. He cuts it out. It's all gone. It's like cancer. It's removed. Circumcision, not with hands. Circumcision performed by Jesus Christ. Spiritual surgery. He performs it on every single individual that comes to Jesus Christ. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, everyone who trusts what Jesus did, he performs this spiritual surgery. Old is passed away. He cuts it away, every aspect of it. Listen to this verse again. All the fullness of deity lives in Christ's body, and you have been filled by him. You were also circumcised by him. This wasn't performed by human hands. The whole body was removed through this circumcision by Christ. Everything was taken out. Everything. I've talked to a lot of people, I'm sure you have as well, who, people who've gone through surgeries and they had stuff taken out. You know, things that aren't supposed to be there. And the doctor comes out and says, I got good news. We got it all. We got it all. And people are like, yeah, yeah, they got it all. Well, listen up. Jesus got it all. All. All out. All gone. Clean bill of health. Completely and totally brand spanking new. You know where they got brand spanking new? <laughs> you can just imagine, can't you? I don't know. It's that kind of that, that thing that that thing that you know doctors that deliver babies. You know they they. Uh, yeah, why? That's right. Get those kids, get those kids to start going ah, screaming and stuff like that. Lungs are working. Everything is good. <laughs> Brand spanking new. God does the same thing with us. Although he doesn't spank us, he, he cuts away the flesh. He cuts away all that is old. Everything that's part of the past. The old man, the old flesh, the old desires, the old thoughts, the old feelings. It's all gone. He takes it all away. Surgically, spiritually, he removes it all. You're no longer... You're no longer a slave to your sin. You're no longer the one who is guilty and guilt-ridden. You're no longer the one who's living in rejection all the time. You're no longer the one who, who has developed those kinds of habits that have been part of your life in the past. When you come to Christ, He takes it all away. He cuts it all away. And part of the beauty and the privilege of this table and this supper and this remembrance is it gives us an opportunity not just to focus on what he did to secure our freedom, not just what he did to pay our price, not just what he did to exchange lives, to take our place, 
But celebrating this remembrance is an opportunity for us to focus on who we now are. Who we are. Who we are. I really think that many, many Christians spend way too much time, not that it's not important and not that it's not necessary, but way too much time thinking about the past and not enough thinking about the future. Spending so much time focusing on what he did to get me into the operating room. What he did to give me a clean bill of health. What he did to secure my freedom. Focus on all of that. And I think we should, but it's not enough. You need to start focusing and remembering how Jesus Christ gave you his life. There's a twist on these words, by the way. His challenge is, remember how I gave you my life. And all of us automatically understand everything that I've just talked about and how he gave us his life so that we could have new life. But I want you to, I want you to check out number six. Because Jesus says, I made your life brand new. I made your life brand new. If any man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become fresh and new. I made your life brand new. So why are you still hanging out in the old neighborhood? I made your life brand new. So how come you're still looking in the mirror thinking you're ugly? Thinking you're no good. Thinking you're poor. Feeling sorry for yourself. I made you brand new. So why? Why are you sitting all by yourself in the corner feeling sorry for yourself? And focusing on all the horrible things that have happened to you. I paid for them. I took them. I surgically wiped them out of your life. Focus on that. Focus on that. Your identity is not what it was. Your whole life is brand new. Brand spanking new. (laughs) I made your life brand new. Nobody, nobody can do this kind of a job except Jesus. Nobody. Nobody. There are psychologists and psychiatrists and there are surgeons, spiritually speaking, counselors that are constantly trying to help people to overcome stuff and deal with stuff. And I'm not knocking on some of it because it sure is helpful sometimes. But I want you to understand, Jesus doesn't just give you principles. Jesus doesn't just tell you good ideas and things that you can start doing to transform and change the pain you're in and the agony you've been through. Jesus takes it away. 
takes it away. It's gone. Somebody who's had cancer and has had surgery and they've had it all taken away and they come out and the doctor says, I'm giving you a clean bill of health. We got it all. And you go home. And I've met people who've suffered with this. They can't get over the fact that they might still have it. They can't live without the fear that it might still be there. And sometimes they're paralyzed because what if it's not all gone? By the way, I'm not knocking any of those feelings. We're human. What I am saying is focus. Please focus with me on the fact that he gives us a brand new life. It is all gone. And if you keep bringing up what's already gone, you're never going to have victory. Never. I've done counseling for years and years and years, 40 plus years in ministry. And I don't know how many times I've met with couples and we're sitting there talking and stuff. And and they keep talking about stuff that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. Sometimes they keep bringing up stuff, fresh wounds. But they're not fresh. They're old. Old things, the Bible says, old things are passed away. I don't know how many times I've had to tell a husband or a wife, you better put that behind you or you're not going to be married. You need to let it go. You need to allow and believe that there's been change and transformation. But you know what's really awesome? We're not talking about human stuff here. (laughs) We're not talking about some really smart person helping you and me deal with life. We're talking about Jesus Christ who surgically and spiritually totally transforms us. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. The issue is not whether it happens. The issue is not whether or not God does this. The issue is not whether when we come to remember him in communion, this symbolizes this fact. The issue is, do I believe it? Do I believe it enough to embrace it? Do I believe it enough to take steps and walk forward based on these facts? To treat other people based on this truth? To respond to other people based on this truth? And to recognize, as we were learning on Wednesday night, that me, I in Christ, you in Christ, you are no longer rejectable. You're going to be rejected. That's part of life. But you're not rejectable in Christ. You are no longer a slave to fear. You are no longer, unfortunately, imperfect in Christ. You are complete. Complete. But you've got to walk there. You've got to live there. You've got to experience that. And then finally, number seven, which is absolutely key because this is where the transition needs to happen in every single one of us as we remember him. And that is Jesus would say, when it comes to this brand new life, I am your life. I am your life. You know, when Jesus gave his life on the cross and died and was raised and we put our faith and our trust in him, 
He doesn't just simply say, okay, I'm glad you trusted me. Now, here, have this life added to you. John 3.16, most of us know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is everlasting life? Some of you are really smart like I am and you're saying, that's a long time. That's a long-lasting life. But here's what I want you to do. Whenever you read everlasting life or eternal life, I want you to put in the name Jesus Christ. Because the only life that's eternal is His life. And when you and I put our trust in Christ, He takes us out of Adam, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and He places us in Christ. That's where eternal life is. So our new life is Christ's life. Christ's life. So Jesus wants us to remember, I am your life. So number one, part of the reason you're having so much trouble or difficulty is because you keep trying to live my life. Knock it off. (laughs) Stop. You cannot live the life of Christ. Only Christ can live his life. And his life is what he gives you. He says, I am your life. He says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, in God Colossians 3.3. 3. But even more powerful is, Galosh, is Galatians 2.20. He says, I no longer live, but the Messiah Christ lives in me. And the life that I, now, that I am now living in this body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a difference. What a difference. I don't know about you, but let me give you some some small human example that you may understand. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed something? See your hand. Just want to make sure you're with me. All right. (laughs) We've all been there. But have you been in a situation where you needed something and you knew a certain person who was able to meet you with that need and, and help you take care of it? Right? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. So you go and find this person who you know can handle it. And you have a conversation with them and they take care of it for you. You're all looking at me like you're expecting something really profound. The need that we have as Christians, as little Christs, as Christ followers, the need that we have, the greatest need that we have is Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. It's allowing Jesus Christ to live his life through us. That's That's what victory is. Victory is not me powering up and manipulating a situation or quoting some powerful verse from the Bible and saying, I got the victory. (laughs) 
And I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to make fun of anybody. I just want you to understand our victory is not in what we do or whose name we use or what verses we claim. Our victory is not how faithful we, faithful we are every day to, to spend time with God. Our victory is in a person. It's in Christ. It is Him. And Jesus says, remember how I gave you my life. Yes, I gave it to you so that you'd be free. Yes, I gave it to you to pay the price. Yes, I gave it in order to secure your future and to bless you. But I gave you my very life to replace yours. Have you given it up yet? Have you been pinned on the mat and finally come to the place where you're willing to say, Uncle? Have you come to the place where you've become so tired of trying so hard and you've been completely worn out trying to be something or behave a way or act a way or live out a way that is just so hard because it's impossible and you're weary. This morning, Jesus would say, remember how I gave you my life. Surrender. Give up. Give up. The only way you're going to receive the blessing and the power and the joy and the freedom and, and literally the, the hilariousness of walking in incredible fellowship with God is when you surrender. It's when you say, I'm done. I'm done. Therefore, Romans 6, 4, Therefore, just as the Messiah was raised from the dead by the Father's glory, we too may live an entirely new life. You know, this is really, really, really awesome. This is not just some story. This is a real possibility. You can live free. You can live in joy. You can live in peace. You can live in this way. Because Jesus gave you and me his very life. His very life. I want you to think about that as you watch this video. When I first heard Tell Your Heart to Beat Again, it had such an amazing impact on my heart. You know, not only in its lyrical content, but then when I heard the story behind it, it really changed the way I looked at this song. There was a pastor in Ohio who had a heart surgeon that went to his church. But one of the things that this pastor wanted to do was he wanted to see a heart surgery take place. And when the day of the surgery came, they rolled the patient in, and they began to cut her chest cavity open, they took her heart out, and they began to repair it. One of the things they do is, is they have to restart the heart again before they close the chest cavity. And as they began to do the procedures to start the heart, the heart wouldn't start. Finally, the doctor did something so out of textbook and not written down, it's just something that you really don't do. And he got down on his knees. He said, Mrs. Johnson, this is your doctor. He said, we have fixed your heart. 
We have repaired it. There's nothing wrong with your heart. Miss Johnson, if you can hear me, I need you to tell your heart to beat again. And her heart began to beat. And why do I share this story with you? Because the great physician has fixed your heart and my heart. But I find it interesting that sometimes we allow the voice of the enemy to whisper louder than the voice of our Father. And it seems like some of these voices tell us that, you know what, that situation we'll never recover from. Or what that person did, we can never forgive again. But I'm here to let you know that you can forgive again. You can get back up again. You can move forward with your life. And you don't have to walk with a limp. It's simply like this doctor said to this lady. This lady had to come into agreement. The heart was repaired. God has fixed your problem. Your heart is fixed. But you have to come in agreement with God. You know, I look at my story and I look at how I went through loss and how I had to get myself back up. When I look at the pain of my past, it doesn't sting like it used to. But I look back and I see, look what the Lord has done. And I know God wants to do the same for you. I want you to begin to hope again. He wants you to believe again. He wants you to trust again. The great physician, our Father, through Jesus, wants you to tell your heart to beat again.